Hello and welcome to this interview special episode of Tech EU podcast. I am your host, Andrew Degler. It is Christmas time and I wish you very, very happy holidays and I hope that you can spend some time just resting, you know. On my end, I have prepared a couple of longer interview recordings to share with you over this relatively quiet period. And today I've got a conversation with Andrew Bodd, the founder and CEO of face verification firm iProof, and an engineer who has witnessed firsthand a big chunk of the modern computing and communications history. And I do think that at least a third of this interview is actually about all the things that he had done before founding iProof, which I found equally interesting. So you're in for a treat, I promise. Let's check this out together. I've been uh, going through your LinkedIn profile, as I usually do with uh, like before interviews, and yours is long. So if you could just maybe walk me through uh, the milestones, like the main things that you have been doing uh, for, from the time when you got your master's degree, that was in 1982, if I'm not mistaken. So what's been happening? What have you been up to? So I've had the good fortune to be an engineer in some of the most exciting things in the world through times of great change. So I started out in the nuclear industry. I was involved with nuclear fusion research, and I did some of that in the UK and in America. But it's not a great business for people who are impatient because it measures its, its, uh, its progress in decades rather than in years. So I had the opportunity to work for Europe's leading firm of contract research and development, uh, which was called PA, PA Technology, a division of PA mm -hmm. Consulting Services, whose laboratory was outside Cambridge. And I spent six years there, and it was terrific because every six months we got to work on something completely different. And the main qualification for being put on a project is that you should not know anything about the subject matter when you went in because that would impair your creativity. So I got thrown into a whole series of things about which I knew absolutely nothing to begin with. My, my speciality was a control was as a control systems engineer. And I did actually do control systems. I built the uh, software that ran uh, an immensely high-speed machine for making chocolate bars extremely fast. Um, if anyone ever tells you that you get sick of chocolate when you're working in a chocolate factory, after almost a year working at Cadbury's Island in Kulok, I can tell you it's not true. You get fat and spotty, but you never get sick of the product. <laughs> um, and I also worked on, on robot-controlled cotton reel dispensers for department stores. I worked on, oh. on, um, on, on an electronic cat flap, which I think was the single most difficult project I ever did in my entire life. And then in about 1986, shortly after coming back from a North Sea oil rig, where I was investigating um, the challenges of, of helium speech, I got pulled into a project that turned out to be the world's first consumer digital mobile phone. And uh, I designed the, the, the digital baseband for that, and I ended up as the project leader for it. And it went on the market in 1989. Uh, oh. I'm, I'm actually holding up one of the working production units. That was absolutely terrific. And this was all about the dawn of microprocessors and the dawn of mobile communications. Because I knew about mobile communications, I was excited by the idea of using that expertise to help a, a very big company change its course entirely. And so in 1988, I went to join Olivetti in Italy. Uh, when I joined, right. Olivetti was the world's second largest producer of personal computers. And when I left, it was more or less bankrupt. And I used to say that to people in my subsequent job interviews. I can do this for you too. <laughs> my job was not personal computers. My job was to lead Olivetti's emergence into the world of mobile communications. So in 1990, so I, I was responsible for the launch in 1990 of Olivetti's first range of mobile phones, the OCT 100, 200, 300 range. The launch in 1993 of the uh, of the world's first decked products, 
uh, premises wireless net premises wireless area networks based upon uh, the decked cordless telephone standard which i helped write and then in 1994 i was the technical head of the team that designed that wrote designed and wrote the bid that won olivetti uh, a cellular fo- the fir- italy's first private cellular f- gsm license omnitel pronto italia wow um so I, the being part of the mobile phone revolution was extraordinarily exciting why do you think then uh, uh, olivetti actually went uh, went down ah i learned it was a very important lesson in the 1980s olivetti had a relationship with had a strategic relationship with at&t that gave olivetti access to the us market for personal computers and that relationship actually ended uh, the week i joined olivetti um <laughs> which meant that olivetti lost access to the us market and it taught me personally a very significant lesson which is that in technology you can win all the battles you like somewhere else but the war is always won in america and once it no longer had access to the sheer scale and competitive intensity of the united states olivetti was really always going to struggle by being subscale all the european computer manufacturers did that and what i would describe as the delamination of the entire uh, mini computer based value chain you know this was the epoch of unix when i joined mm-hmm. olivetti was still selling banking systems which were vertically integrated solutions involving everything from banknote printing hardware printers mini computers operating systems and banking software all as a single integrated unit with very high added value but with the advent of of, of unix particularly um, industry standard unix industrial grade unix like uh, santa cruz operation that's co unix suddenly you, banks could buy their mini computers from box shifters they could buy the operating system from sco they could buy banking services from banking systems from oracle resellers and the entire value chain disintegrated and tech hardware focused it companies which all of them struggled terribly none of the european companies survived and ultimately the big boy biggest boy of them all deck digital equipment corporation they didn't survive either it was a, a huge sea change but whereas the others really vanished or ceased to exist olivetti still exists because olivetti actually by winning the gsm license olivetti transformed itself into a mobile phone operator which it still is yeah it's a bit complicated because they then went and bought telecom italia mm-hmm. and they said and so they sold omnitel to vodafone so omnitel is now vodafone italia and for a long time olivetti existed as the holding company for telecom italia and in mm-hmm. fact still, as a comp- as a brand within telecom italia it still exists today it was a it was an extraordinary company and a remarkable remarkable place i i worked with some of the finest engineers and technicians of my entire life in that place and we they, they their quality their caliber their professionalism and their ability to conf- to confront and deal with new problems was outstanding um, and i consider myself privileged to have to have worked with my colleagues at olivetti from that time right okay i still don't see the straight line that would connect from there uh, to iprove so keep going so the thing the wireless area networks the wireless local networks that we built were triumphs of technology i mean they were yeah they were remarkable pieces of technology in performance terms but they weren't very well marketed and that was my fault because fundamentally i didn't know what i was doing um, and then out of the blue i ha- i got headhunted to come back to the uk to become the the marketing director of a of an ft250 quoted distributed value added distributor of internet technology hmm. and 
one of my standard jokes to say nothing. I don't. I didn't understand what any of the words in that <laughs> sentence meant. <laughs> so it was just a fantastic opportunity to learn to fill in my 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 ignorance and learn about all these things that I didn't know about. And there were reasons why why I was a good person in that role. Um, and in the following two years, I learned an immense amount about um, the commercial routes to market for advanced technology through indirect channels to the point at which I was actually giving I was giving the keynote speech at the industry um, event Euro Channels 97. I still have the the sweatshirt. It's great when I go cycling. I'm still waiting for somebody to stop me, stop me in the street and go, oh, yes, I, I remember Euro Channels 97. I was there. <laughs> Um, and that taught me a great deal about the commercial aspects and the route to marketing for technology. But up until then, I'd been in products. And right. then in, 19, in 1998, um, I joined a telecommunications services company, which actually had been set up by, a, by a, an old university friend of mine, Paul McGuire. Um, they were doing um, um, management of overlay voice messaging networks. And this was this was a telecoms company, an on, a recurring revenue services business. I'd never been in one of those before. And when you've been in t products and technology and manufacturing and inventory and SKUs and trying to get end of month end of month shipments signed and and, and shipped, a, a recurring revenue business is just heaven. It is a revelation <laughs> because you just sit there and once you sign the customers up every what month. The, rev the invoices get cut every month. The service goes up. You don't have to do anything. It's extraordinary. I exaggerate, but it was a revelation to be in that business. Um, it also ran into some headwinds in the late 90s. And so I had my first experience of being on the board of directors of a company that was having to manage itself through financial difficulties. The company was ultimately very successful and was sold. But that also taught me a lot about the financial management of companies under difficulty, which was very, very helpful to me later on. And then what happened was that one of our we, we had to answer an RFP for a voice messaging system for, for consumer applications, which included SMS alerting. Aha! I knew about SMS because I had designed, amongst other things, the SMS capabilities of the original Omnitel network. But the ability to send out large amounts of machine-generated text messages um, was something I was unfamiliar with. So I, I went to see a vendor in Milan, and we sat in Piazza della Repubblica in front of the big station in Milan. And uh, this vendor who was making the very first systems for the distribution of large quantities of SMS, he told me what the future would look like, and the future was SMS. That was the next way that, that enterprises were going to talk to consumers. And once you've seen something like that, you can't unsee it again. It was obvious it was going to happen. But the question was, you know, we had very little capital, very little, very little bandwidth, very little resource. How could a team that was not visible, to, that was so small it wasn't visible to the naked eye, possibly imagine we were going to take on the world when there were so many well-capitalized, powerful organizations in it? Luckily, uh, a few months later, there was, the, there was the last of the great telecom fiestas, Telecom 99, every four years, the telecoms industry used to get together at Pal Expo in Geneva and spend an outrageous amount of money on marketing themselves. I mean, I, I, it was my, it was what my fourth, I think, at that point it was the last one because the, the great telecoms crash of 2002 put an end to it. But at that show, um, I went around and there was nothing about SMS there at all. Everybody was, all the smart money was clearly invested in WAP, the wireless application mm. protocol, mobile internet. That was where all the money was going. At that point, I was nearly 40. And the great advantage of being that age was that when you pick up a phone and at that time played with WAP, it was obvious in 90 seconds that it was going to fail. It was rubbish. The problem was that the industry had convinced itself that this was the future of mankind. And they had just 
failed to notice that it was rubbish. And I suddenly realized that that the SMS opportunity was enormous because all the smart money was going to be off chasing butterflies for the next two years. So with Paul's support and agreement, I founded a new business. I, I built the technology myself. As I say, I'm an engineer, so I've spent late nights with a manual and some, and, and some secondhand servers. And I built uh, what was one of Europe's very first um, SMS aggregators. And within a year, we'd done a million pounds worth of business hmm. um, run on cash flow. It was uh, uh, a fairly ha- ta- hairy experience because we had no capital. It was, two- right. it was the year 2000. The great, the great dot-com crash had occurred. It was very difficult to raise money at that time, so we had to cash flow it. And then in 2001, we were able to raise some money. And uh, the company that subsequently – that comes and M-Blocks, the company that I founded mm-hmm. – went from what do we do a million pounds again in 2001 by 2007 we did a hundred million dollars in revenue oh that included we, we we merged the company into a u.s into a company in sunnyvale california and moved the headquarters to the u.s my lesson that lesson from olivetti you can win all the battles you like in europe but the would better be one in in the United States, we had to get into the United States. We got into the United States. We did it in a very effective way that gave us relationships with the mobile carriers. And we got in at the right time, just as it was taking off. And by 2007, we were the world's largest SMS aggregator. Wow. We had also then got dragged into mobile payments because the mobile operators had discovered that the only API that they had uh, that would enable them to get into the billing and payments business was their SMS API. Because by some internal messing around, they could turn an SMS transaction into a billing transaction. And when they discovered this, they all wanted to get to mobile payments. And so they got their SMS partners to do it for them. And so by 2007, we were the world's largest processor of mobile payments as well. We were clearing and settling about $500 million a year, which was jolly nice. Good margins, low fraud rates, biggest market share. I I was invited to join the board of the industry regulator in the UK. And as I like to say, I wore sharp suits and people, people ask me my opinion about things a lot. <laughs> and then in 2008, the criminals struck and exploited a, f- a weakness in the way in which we had implemented mobile payments. And within months, millions of people had had money stolen from them by transactions that went through our network. So, wow. of course, it's Mr. Pleased with himself who ends up being asked on television, so, Mr. Bud, the role of you and your company in this scandal, were you complicit or just recklessly incompetent? <laughs> That's an unexpected turn. A most unpleasant, unexpected. Can imagine. Turn. You know, we we scrambled to figure out what had happened. We scrambled to fix it. We scrambled through an extremely intense uh, regulatory review, a regulator on whose board, as you might imagine, I suddenly no longer sat. And a few months later, after a very thorough forensic review, they concluded that we had actually behaved in an exemplary manner. But it taught me a very powerful lesson. So two years later, when... Uh, mobile internet really did arrive and apps started to become uh, prevalent. Billing from those entities was going to, we were going to start doing that. I could immediately see how this whole scam and scandal was going to happen again. And the question was, how could we stop it? How could we avoid doing it? So we got some consultants, the world experts in mobile and internet payments, consult Hyperion. It was the first time that I, I met the great David Birch. And we asked them, how could we stop it happening? And after doing a very thorough analysis of the security threats, they said, you can't stop it. There's no way of stopping it. Here is the threat vector. This is going to happen again. That kind of wasn't okay. I really, you know, it wasn't okay. So I spent the whole of 2011 thinking about the problem of how we could strongly authenticate the consent of a genuinely present user in a way that would be that would be strong enough to avoid the very intense pressure that these guys would exert because they could make millions out of it, 
but also was so simple that it would meet the ultimate requirements of mobile payments, which is no clicks. Mm -hmm. And at the end of that, I came up with this idea of using facial verification, but protected by means of controlled illumination against replay and synthetic video attacks. And that was the genesis of, of iProof. In mBlocks, it was, it was far too early. It was an idea. And in mBlocks, we decided that the risk of this business was no longer acceptable. So in 2012, we sold the business. We sold the whole global mobile, mobile billing business completely, wow. which was a good thing because companies left in that business in America in 2013 were fined, I believe, a billion dollars by the state's attorneys general for, for fraudulent billing. So not only which was, was exactly the problem that you, that, that you were looking at. Correct. And then in 2012, I realized that actually what I'd come up with was not just a solution to securing mobile billing. What I'd come up with was an answer to the, one of the most fundamental problems of the internet, which is how do you establish trust in a remote user? That's a, that's a big problem. And I had accidentally invented a really powerful solution to a really big problem. And that was the, that was the, the genesis of, uh, that was the genesis of, of iProof. Right. And uh, before we move any further, uh, there was this uh, sort of question of uh, definitions uh, in the in the run of this uh, interview. What is the difference between facial verification that you're working on and facial recognition that has been uh, uh, talked about a lot? It's a very important and profound question. Both of them happen to use matching of the face against something. So the underlying, some of, some of the underlying technology is the same. But actually, they're fundamentally different because with face verification, you're asserting who you are and then you are knowingly and with your consent using your face to check what you've said in order to get personal benefit in the form of rapid and simple access to something, knowing that your privacy is secured because facial verification permits very, very strong control of privacy. So if you have knowledge and consent and personal benefit and your privacy is secured, then that's facial verification. Facial recognition is the world of surveillance in which without your knowledge, without your consent, without you receiving any personal benefit, and in potentially quite gross violation of your privacy, you are being watched and identified in a public setting. It's a completely different thing. Facial verification right. is a tool and an, an aid that enable people to, to, to protect and assert their own identity, whereas facial verification is a tool for other people potentially to violate the privacy of people's of, of people's um, uh, identity. That's right. the big difference. Right. And it seems like right now we have both recognition and verification uh, being applied by so many different companies uh, in mobile. But what was it like in 2012 then? What was, oh. the, what was the industry like? Was there an industry to speak of? Hilarious. So, you know, I, I, I came in from the mobile industry, which I'd been in for 20 years, nearly 20 years. And I knew all about that stuff. And I came into this world of cybersecurity and biometrics about which I knew nothing. So I was completely ignorant, innocent in the woods. What I didn't realize for the first few years was that when I would move, when we went into early sales meetings with customers like banks, and we talked about face, face biometric verification, the customers would sit there and listen and nod politely. What we didn't know was that when we left the room, they'd fall about laughing and going, <laughs> another <laughs> idiot trying to sell us biometrics. Because there had been a false dawn in biometrics in the late noughties, in the late noughties, in which a, quite a number of innovative and advanced company, organizations like banks had mm -hmm. tried out biometrics, and there'd been an egregious failure. And people's mm. careers had got severely damaged because they had bet on biometrics, and it had all gone horribly wrong. So, in the years leading up to about 2015, biometrics, unbeknownst to me, had a 
really bad reputation. I mean, a really bad reputation. Nobody would touch it. Was it because the tech was uh, was not good enough? Was it because the hardware was not powerful enough? What was the reason? So face matching technology had historically been based upon a, an, an algorithmic method that didn't that, that didn't work terribly well. It was very mm -hmm. sensitive to the training set, extremely sensitive to the training sets. The training sets were very, could, but were necessarily very small, uh, and it was very sensitive to things like lighting conditions. So basically, it just didn't work well. And then mm -hmm. in 2014, Facebook and the University of Tel Aviv published an epoch-making paper uh, called DeepFace, which described the very first use of deep of how deep learning could be applied to face matching. It was a completely different method, and it, re it it completely removed the need to hand mark up data sets, which meant that you could use enormously more de larger data sets to train on, and also the performance was much better. And, and our our research director of the time, who was a world class academic, came to me and said, "This changes everything. We can we can build our own face matcher because up until then we'd been licensing it from other people." And when mm -hmm. I picked myself up the off the floor, having fallen about laughing at the idea that this 12-person underfunded startup in a derelict building in Waterloo could somehow take on the world's largest companies in the face matching business. We went away and we did it. And in February 2016, we launched the world's first commercially available online face matching service based on deep learning-based face matching. And it worked fantastically well. Hmm. And uh, as Google reports, that the, and the NIST reports, that the performance of, of deep learning-based face matchers has been increasing at an extraordinary rate every year since then. So the advent of deep learning into biometrics, particularly face biometrics, completely transformed its performance to the stage now where it just is fantastic. When it comes to facial verification, nobody worries about the quality. Of the, nobody should worry about the quality of the face verifier, face matcher, because it's literally orders of magnitude better than is necessary. Which means that when it comes to face verification, the challenge is no longer face matching. People say, "How good is your face matcher?" We go. Wrong question. What you should ask is, how good is your ability to determine that the face that you think you're matching is genuinely present at all? How do you know that you're not looking at an artifact, uh, hmm. which is a perfect copy of the victim's face, like a photograph or an image on a screen, or a deep learning generated video, which has been fed directly into the data streams? That's your real risk. You know, your face isn't a secret. Your face, is, your face is a public document. It's all over LinkedIn and Facebook. Nobody needs to steal my face because I've given it away already. So it's, it's, it's not a secret. It's not like people say, your face, my face is my password. Your face is not your password. A password is a shared secret. How can your face, which is all over the internet, be a secret? It's clearly right. the wrong model. Your face is, a, is great as a security element because it, the genuine article is unique. So therefore, the whole security of face verification depends upon being able to check that you're looking at the genuine article. And that's a hard problem. And that's the problem that iProof solves. And we solve it better than anybody else in the world. How do you solve it then? Like, what do you, what do you look at? What's the idea here? So the, the idea is very simple. Uh, it's based on a technology that we, I patented in 2012 called the Flashmark. What we do is we generate, a cryptographic we, we generate a cryptographic code in our servers. We send that to the user's device, which can be any device, no special hardware required at all. That code tells the device to flash a sequence of colors onto the screen of the user's device. That illuminates their face. While their face is being illuminated by that sequence, which is unique and unpredictable, We send video of their face back to our servers where we analyze the way that the screen light reflects off their face. 
from the way that it reflects off their face and interacts with the ambient light, we can tell whether it's a uh, skin-covered, live, uh, human-face-shaped 3D object or not. And from the sequence of colors that is reflecting in this genuine way, we can tell whether they're actually genuinely present now or not. Because that code is unknown to the attacker until the very instant at which it flashes up on until the instant at which it flashes up on the screen, and therefore only the genuine object can actually reflect the right sequence of colors. So we look at it spatially, we look at it spectrally, we look at it temporally, we look for other cues, and those together are so secure that in a US federal government red team, a, a red team biometric penetration attack, which was conducted in the spring of this year as a condition for our deployment by the US Customs and Border Protection, they concluded that that using current technology, it was not a it was I can't remember the exact words. We were practically it was practically not it was not practical to spoof us. Mm -hmm. So and the great thing is the user doesn't have to do anything. They just look at their device, it looks back at them, bit of flashing lights for a few seconds, done. Any of your any of your listeners who are European citizens resident in the United Kingdom and have applied for settled status will recognize this description because Every, anyone who applies for settled status on their mobile phone gets eye-proved, hmm. and they'll have seen this, these, these flashing colors. It's very distinctive. It's a bit of ceremony that reassures people when they're doing something identity-related that their identity is being protected and looked after. This sounds this sounds very like like a very smart uh, smart way of doing things. So uh, the UK, uh, the US uh, Customs. Uh, who else are your clients? Whom are you working with? Government of Singapore. So after a, a long and big international tender. The Singapore government selected iProve as the strong authenticating factor for the use of the national digital identity uh, credential known as SingPass, which is used for access to all government services and increasingly for access to uh, private sector financial services. So we secure a nation in the form of Singapore. Mm -hmm. We provide the autom we provide automated biometric uh, verification for people signing up to the national UK national health services um, uh, a single sign-on digital identity known as NHS login. Uh, we are used by a, a European EIDAS provider in Estonia as to, to, to onboard people for qualified signatures. We're the first ever automated biometrics security solution to have achieved certification under the EIDAS standards hmm. uh, for qualified signatures. And we're used by lots of banks. We're used by ING and by Rabobank in the Netherlands. Uh, we're used by Standard Bank in South Africa. We're used by Discount Bank of Singapore in Singapore. And there are a number of other very large applications which we haven't talked about. We're increasingly working with partners. So we work with Ebonim, mm -hmm. the, the, the leaders in self-sovereign identity, document certifiers like Accuant and so on. So we're working very much. We Increasingly, we work with partners to enable them to include biometric face verification into their overall solution, which they sell to customers in a way that is super, super simple, inclusive, and easy to use. And also simple to secure. So it's also extremely secure to use. I mean, mm -hmm. look, the reason people use this is not because I can talk uninterruptedly about iProof for 30 minutes without taking a breath, but because when it comes to user testing, the, our, our percentage completion rates are incredibly high. The number of trans, the number of attempts that users need to make in order to to complete a transaction is very low, and the usability, as tested in various usability trials, and things like age and ability inclusivity, is very very high as well. Right, and uh, but still, you are not the only solution on the market. What's the competition like for you? Whom are you competing with, first of all? So for a long time, there was there was no competition. For a long time, our competition was people asking consumers to blink. 
<laughs> I, I, Brilliant. I'm not kidding you. I'm not kidding you. I'm not kidding you. Uh, now there are, and it, there is an increasing number of companies that have understood that assuring genuine presence and assuring liveness, which is kind of a lower grade check, liveness is is kind of a liveness is the way that mm-hmm. it, liveness is when you are protecting just against artifacts. Genuine presence is when you protect against both artifacts and digital spoofs. So there are increasing right. number of companies who are in the liveness business and are specialising in that. I, some of them are quite good. No, nobody's nobody nobody very large is in this. There were, perhaps we may be amongst the largest players in this sector. But compet- I, I learned a long time ago, it's very important to have competition, especially competent competition, when you're trying to create and grow a new category. So there are three or four companies who, like us, care deeply about the assurance aspects of face verification. Uh, without exception, all they, they can only do liveness assurance. They can't do genuine presence assurance. Today, we're the only company in the world that can provide genuine presence assurance, assuring against things like deep, injected deep fakes. Right, but then I mean, it's all it's all great, and it's uh, it's really smart. I really like the idea; it's it's perfect. Uh, but then, like, do we actually need it to be this uh, this hard? Why can't we just use the fingerprint? So, I think there are two or three issues with fingerprints. Fingerprints require readers on handsets, okay, and yeah. and some people don't have and some people don't have fingerprint readers on their handsets. Most people don't have fingerprint readers on their computers, so you just don't have universal coverage. The second mm-hmm. thing is that. Uh, you rely that the fingerprint is read entirely on the local device, which is fine until the local device is compromised. Don't forget the fingerprint is never the fingerprint is never seen by the bank or the government. All they get is the is the device going. Don't you worry. Take my word for it. It's all fine. <laughs> you know that's not that's not really okay. And increasingly, it's also not okay because if you drop your to- your phone in the toilet, which is what happened to my son a little while ago, you just lost your identity. And so now you need a way of uh, re-establishing it, which can't be based upon your fingerprint. Well, what's it? Well, that's okay. People say, you know, it's, we'll base it on your grandmother's maiden name instead. <laughs> you know, or or text message. I know we'll send you a text message to your phone. I, yeah. I used to be the chairman of the world's largest pro- processor of text messaging. I can give you a lecture on all the ways in which that is a really, really, really bad and insecure solution. So, device-based solutions have their place. They can be very convenient. They have an ex. There are lots of excellent attributes of it. You have things like the FIDO Alliance, who are who are um, standardizing that sort of approach, but it doesn't solve the problem completely. And you have to have cloud-based authentication to provide often a second factor, which is independent of the device, to provide device portability, portability of identity between the devices, to provide recovery. And when it comes to usability, there is nothing better than the face. I look at my device, it looks back at me. It is the simplest solution imaginable. I mean, that's one reason why one of the many reasons why Apple moved from fingerprints to faces with the iPhone 10. I mean, my wife, for example, is a rather renowned studio potter, a ceramic artist. Hmm. Uh, she can't use fingerprints. Something like 20% of people don't have fingerprints that are legible because they've been worn off. So, sorry, if you're, if you're one of the 80%, you can use fingerprints. If you're one of the 20% whose fingerprints aren't very good, I'm sorry, you know, your, your identity is insecure. We're trying to get an inclusive solution. Face is extremely good. It can be read by any device with a front-facing camera, which, in fact, this means absolutely everything. Thanks to deep learning, it works extremely well, and thanks to genuine presence assurance, it's extremely secure. What's not to like? True. Yeah. Speaking of inclusivity, by the way, I had another question because there have been a lot of uh, media uh, discussion about uh, the racial bias in uh, face biometric tech in general. So is it something that you are paying attention to? Uh, does it uh, interfere with, uh, with, your, uh, with your product, with your work? Uh, we pay very great attention to it for two reasons. One is that it's it's a it's a question of product quality. You know, a, a solution that works well on some ethnicities and or, or genders 
uh, and and doesn't work well on others is a is a flawed product. And in our proof, we 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 don't like producing flawed products. So it's a matter of product quality for us, but it's also a matter of uh, regulatory and customer demand. So when we're working with the government of Singapore, for example, they insist that there should be no discrimination, demonstrably no discrimination between the Indians, Malays, Indonesians, and uh, ethnic Chinese people who make up the population of, of Singapore. Mm-hmm. When we're serving Standard Bank, in, which is the largest bank in South Africa, so our partners there identify, it wouldn't be acceptable for people of African ethnicity to receive a lower grade of service than the white population. It just wouldn't be acceptable. So in our business, given the geographical spread of that we have, it is it would be it would be uh, un- unacceptable. Now we recognise from the beginning the, the risk. Uh, we've put in place systems that actively look for traces of bias. Mm-hmm. You know, there are none so blind as those who will not see, uh, goes the old saying. And we we actively look for evidence of bias. We have systems in place that are able to carve and slice our data to see whether the performance completion and other performance metrics uh, differ between different genders, different ages, and different ethnicities. And when we when we will find that difference, and I'm sure that we will in due course find it, we'll identify it, and then we'll fix it. At the moment, our data suggests that we do not have statistically significant performances between different ethnicities, different genders, and different ages. But we are actively looking for it so that we can find it when it occurs and fix it. And that's a matter, as I say, it's, it's very important to us from a matter of product pride as well as customer demand. And of course, political acceptability. Yeah, right. And uh, how big is iProve at the moment? Uh, how many people do you, do you have? We have about 65 people worldwide at the moment. We right. have, uh, we're, we're, most of us are based in, most of us are based in London. And because it's it's November of COVID, of COVID year 20, I, I, I give the inverted commas around based in London because uh, everyone, of course, is working from home. But yeah. when, when in the good times, as they were and hopefully will be again, um, we're ba- we, our offices are in Waterloo, in the centre of London. But we have a we have a growing team in the United on the east coast of the United States, based in Washington DC, and we have right. a team in, in Singapore as well. Right. Have you raised the external funding so far? Do you need it we, at all? Um, we did. We did our Series A in the middle of two thousand and nineteen from a group of angel investors. We were seed funded back from 2015 by a, a team from the London private equity firm, JRJ, JRJ Capital, mm-hmm. uh, and they've been very supportive all the way through. We've not raised huge amounts of money, but uh, we, in fact, we made a profit in 2019, but we are in, a, in, a, in an expansion mode at the moment. Right. Okay, then to finish it off, I really like asking uh, the, this question as the last. So uh, what is your big vision in terms of just imagine the world when everyone is using your product? So what is the world like in this situation and how is it different from the world that we are living in right now? When, when I hired my CTO, Don Forrest, who, I'd worked, who had worked for me, with me for many, many years at Mblocks before then, he said, what do you want me to do? I said, Andrew, I want, I said, what do you want me to do, Andrew? I said, Don, I want you to design an architecture which we can build out that will accommodate billions of users. And that's quite literally ambition. Look, I want to get to the stage where iProve protects the identity of people all over the world, that we are creating trust in the internet every day, many times a day, for citizens in every country of the world who are using the internet to communicate, who are using it to transact, who are using it to control their funding, who are using it to uh, to control their finances, who are using it to get government services, who are using it to set up dating. Every online transaction relies on trust. And I want iProve to be helping 
to uh, secure the identities and create that trust for people uh, worldwide throughout their lives. That, to me, is a powerful and valuable mission, and it provides the, the vision uh, that drives iProof. I want people. I want people to know that they're safe, to be safe, and to know that they are safe when they see the very characteristic and patented user interface of a line drawing of their face uh, mm-hmm. that is iProof. If you see that line drawing, which is a, an iProof user interface experience, it's a way of avoiding selfie anxiety, so that you don't notice how big big your chin is and whether the <laughs> fact that you've got some nose hair when your phone is in the normal, comfortable using position, and you don't have to go and do a selfie. That line drawing protects you from selfie anxiety. It's iProof's patented user interface. When you see that line drawing, you know that you're iProving. When you know that you're iProving, you know that your identity is being protected in the strongest possible way. And I want people to have that confidence every day in every confidence worldwide. So we should expect to see uh, this uh, blinking of different colors more often around us. You're absolutely right. <laughs> right. Andrew, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. And I, I guess I could go on with the questions for much longer, but we are out of time. So thanks a million uh, for joining and uh, good luck with uh, iProof. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you for inviting me. So it's been a long conversation and this is it for our today's episode. Thank you so much for listening and do hope that you enjoyed it. Please help us spread the word if you feel like it. Tell a friend or colleague about the show and follow our updates on Twitter at tech underscore EU. Music and audio engineering for this podcast are done by SoundPulse, that is sound-pulse.com. Do check them out. Please feel free to email us with any questions, suggestions, and opinions at podcast at tech.eu. I will be back with another interview special soon. In the meantime, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and enjoy your holidays. Bye-bye.